Hello, and welcome to Dissecting Philosophy with Dr. McDonald. In this episode, I will be having a discussion of Albert Camus' speech, Create Dangerously. And it's all in preparation for the upcoming discussions all about Camus' book, The Plague, as I was waiting on it coming in the post. So I had this little nice penguin book here and thought, why not? Let's have a wee discussion of this before the plague arrives in the post. And luckily enough, today it arrived, so I'll be getting cracking on with that for next week's episode. So we'll be cracking into this today and that'll be kicking us off as well into look at and talk about Camus philosophy a little bit as well. So kicking us off into Camus then, let's discuss a few different things. First of all, let's have just a very brief discussion of his background, and then going into the speech itself, talking about what is art for Camus, what is the artist's responsibility, and then examples of what makes great art for Camus to round us off with some nice examples to discuss. So then, let's go into discuss Camus' background. So, Albert Camus' time frame is from 1913 to 1960. So, nice 20th century French philosopher. And he is an existentialist philosopher. And existentialism means that it's a philosophical theory that people are free agents who have control over their actions and choices. Existentialists believe that society should not restrict an individual's life or actions and that these restrictions inhibit free will and the development of that person's potential. So all of this really is a nice complement to the Nietzsche that we've just finished in the sense of with the loss of God, an individual is now free to create the world for themselves is a nice way of putting it as well for existentialism as a movement. And then the background to the speech itself was it was given at the University of Uppsala in Sweden in December 1957 and then a few days later Camus was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature. So that gives us a nice little backdrop exactly to Camus. So then let's get started into the speech and Camus' idea of the artist because Camus frequently brings up the term R and artist and normally we associate these things solely to the art world such as painting and drawn. However, we need to say here, and specifically Camus' use of the term, is much broader than what we would initially think of it. Why is this the case? Because he uses the term artist to also include novelists, philosophers, film directors, and playwrights. So, if you go and read the little speech itself, then 
you've got to keep in the back of your mind the fact is it's applied to a much broader spectrum and that's the way in which we should think of this in much more broad terms as applying to anything that we can create should be thought of as artistic. And so hence why that would include not only the art world but also literature as well as philosophers, film directors, playwrights, and so on. It's all those creative processes. It's all those points in which we either put pen to paper or a digital pen to a screen and so on, all putting your ideas and producing them and creating wonderful things. So then, since we've established the fact that the artist is then thought in a very broad term, encompassing really the artistic spectrum, we can then go in to touch upon a really nice question of what is art for Camus? And as I always like to do, we've got some wee cracking quotes to have a discussion about. So let's get started into a quote from the speech. As it says, Art is a revolt against everything fleeting and unfinished in the world. Consequently, its only aim is to give another form to a reality that is nevertheless forced to preserve as a source of emotion. Art is neither a complete rejection nor a complete acceptance of what is. It is simultaneously rejection and acceptance, and this is why it must be perpetually renewed, wrenching apart. The artwork that maintains an equilibrium between reality and man's rejection of that reality, this is the contradictory and tireless cry of every true artist. The cry that every once in a while awakens for all of us in this world asleep the fleeting and insistent image of a reality without ever having known it. Fantastic quote as well, and let's break it down. So, art is a revolt against everything fleeting and unfinished in the world. Yes, why is that the case? Because art ultimately puts its stamp upon the world. And you take things that are fleeting and encompass them and capture them in a moment. Like a photograph, for instance. You take a snapshot of an instance of reality and it becomes complete in that instance and of course as we're dealing with a broad spectrum it doesn't have to just deal with photography even if it was film it's capturing a brief moment in time or even writing it's capturing that writer's thoughts at that given moment in time and so then let's build upon this Consequently, its only aim is to give another form to reality that is nevertheless forced to preserve as a source of emotion. And so here we have to get a little bit into the relation of art itself and what are we producing? 
when we try to say I want to produce reality, that is to say I want a really pure reflection of the actual thing as, as close as I can physically get it. What I can paint or draw or write will try to encompass the actual thing itself. Let's say it's a still life and you're painting fantastic fruit and you want your painting to reflect it exactly as you see it. Then comes in the point that you can't. It's physically impossible. Why? Why can't you capture exactly what you see? Well, for the still life, in that given instance, as well as Camus gives this lovely example, if you paint it, then you are forced to make adjustments. Why is that? Because the light is something that will be in a state of continual change. And as you paint, it'll take a period of time to do. And if you do it, then you'll have to continually make lighting adjustments as you go through. And so the light will never actually be represented as it was. Why? Because, again, it goes into those first points. You're capturing a brief moment in that given way. Or, let's say if it's in a Cezanne painting of still life, these fantastically beautiful paintings, then you capture all very brief moments of how the light manipulates and bends and so forth. But still, it's all just brief snapshots, if ever you like to put it. It's only those brief moments that you're capturing, not actual reality itself. And then would come in an argument to say, well, okay, fair enough. I'll just change my artistic field. If painting won't get me the route of displaying reality as purely as it can possibly be displayed, then I'll go with film. Because what do we have with film is the immediate reproduction of reality directly captured by the camera. The camera doesn't lie, is a good thing that always people like to say. And then Camus also gives this example as well. They say, well, okay, if you try to literally film someone's entire life, it would still only capture a certain moment within their life. It wouldn't capture absolutely positively everything. There would always be those moments that the camera misses. And so, why is all this the case in the first place? Why can you never actually represent reality for Camus as well? Because what you have as an image in the first place is always attributed to the whole point of what the image means and what is the idea that it portrays and what do you want the person watching it or reading the book and so forth to feel. It all has that point of going back into the artist's intention and exactly why did they write the book or why did they paint in the first place. All to come back into that artist's meaning for the piece. And so that then affects exactly how we read or watch things because we don't have a direct representation of reality. As it says, going back into the line, we give form to a reality, 
that is forced to preserve as a source of emotion because what it's trying to capture is specifically having an idea that wants to make us feel something. Whether that be joy, happiness, sadness, disgust, laughter, and so on, it'll be a specific idea that's attributed to it that it wants us to feel at given moments as well, when we watch it or read it and so on. And so we never have an actual representation of reality for itself. Why not? Because reality is given form by the artist's meaning and by their ideas. We want to be able to feel something from what we see. Why is that? Because of the artistic representation that's taken place. That makes us feel all this emotion out of it. Therefore, everything that we see and read all is sources of emotion for us and even listen to because music is another thing that would count for Camus within this broad spectrum. And so, long explanation, but we managed to get exactly into what that line is meaning. So let's continue on. Art is neither a complete rejection nor a complete acceptance of what is. It is simultaneously rejection and acceptance. And this is why it must be a perpetually renewed wrenching apart. And so building upon this last point then, we can see that there is not a complete acceptance of what is because the artist twists reality and forms it and shapes it into what they want it to mean. And therefore, there's not either a complete rejection of what is. And so what would the rejection part of it be? And what would that mean if you went down that avenue? And so touching upon this a little bit more is to go down the road of a completely idealistic route in which Camus argues that you go more and more into representing reality as a dreamlike state. Or as Nietzsche would say in relation to poetry, this cloud land in which everything's all lovey-dovey and has this whole relation to nice fluffy clouds. So what would this be like? We can get an idea of this when you have just the ideas of a complete beautiful landscape that's incredibly picturesque, for instance, would be very much dreamlike. Something like a Monet that you would get want to get lost in that beautiful landscape and scenery that Monet paints. Or even a Bob Ross painting in which it's so beautiful and scenic and picturesque of all the mountains and trees and forest landscape and so forth that Bob Ross paints. Or you can go down even more the route of, of going more into abstract works, which would be an absolute complete rejection of anything to do with physical objects whatsoever. And you would go into more abstraction and geometrical shapes and so on, like Kandinsky. And so, here in which we come back to the points of 
that it's not a complete rejection of reality either. Why is that the case? Because you need the actual objects in the world in order to use them to say exactly what you want them to mean. You need actual things in the world. So going back into those points about abstracts, works, you still need the use of physical things, even if you're trying to show something that is dreamlike. So let's go into Dali, for instance, and those fantastic surrealist artworks. It's still in relation to actual real objects, but you're ultimately bending and manipulating them, such as the melting of a clock or making legs elongated and so forth. It's all still in relation to actual objects. Or if it's such a thing as a Kandinsky in which you have fantastic colors and geometric shapes and all those different fantastic things going on, it still has that relation back into reality. There's nothing that can be produced that ultimately doesn't have a relation back into our experience, ultimately. All what we can do is manipulate them in some way. It goes into a fantastic point that David Hume makes about our imagination, in which, so he's a Scottish Enlightenment philosopher. Sure, a thing like a golden mountain doesn't exist in the actual world, but ultimately we can take those two things that exist in reality, gold and mountains, then we combine them together. What do you get? A golden mountain. Same thing for artistic endeavors, ultimately. And so let's continue on with the quote. The artwork that maintains an equilibrium between reality and man's rejection of that reality. This is the contradictory and tireless cry of every true artist, the cry that every once in a while awakens for all in this world asleep, the fleeting and insistent image of reality without ever having known it. So, here we have the whole point. The artist has this whole manipulation of reality in order to create an image or a an idea when you're reading it. All these fantastic things. What does that enable us to do as readers, as watchers of film, as people who take in paintings? What does that do from our end? is that when we read a novel or look at an absolutely amazing photograph or painting, watch a fantastic film, what does all that do? The truly great ones, Camus would say, it all awakens us to a world that otherwise we have never truly known. It's like suddenly realizing something that you didn't before. It's like suddenly that idea light bulb just suddenly goes off like, oh, so therefore, what is the power of art and all those creative processes is that it makes us not only have an emotional connection, but in that emotional connection, awakens us to specific 
idea of reality. And so we're able to become immersed and awakened to how the world is suddenly shown to us that we didn't know it before. That is the power of R. It's like if we go into a scientific example for a moment. Gravity is a thing that existed before Newton discovered it. In which you have that famous example of Newton sitting under the apple tree and the apple falls on his head. It hits him on the head and then suddenly he thinks about it, reflects upon it and comes up with the whole idea of gravity. Here we can take the whole artistic and creative endeavor and say that is what art is like. It has that relation into precisely grasping something, showing people something that didn't exist within their own minds of how they see the world. It can affect us to that emotional state of, oh my God, I didn't realize this. Oh my God, I didn't know I could feel this way and so passionately about this specific idea or about whatever the novel is arguing for and so forth. We can get caught up so much and it awakens us so much to a reality, as it says there, to which lays dormant to a world in which we otherwise don't know. And so that's one way in which we could summarize this quote. What is the purpose of art? Is that it's not either something that's purely idealistic, so it's not caught within a complete dream state, nor is it a complete representation of actual reality. Why is that? Because it's physically impossible. Because what does reality represent? The artistic representation, the artist's idea. Rather, as Camus would say, it's a combination of both. You have the artistic manipulation of reality. You need physical things there in the first place. What would that then do? Show the artist's idea. What do we take in as watchers, viewers, listeners? We become awakened to a world that we otherwise didn't know before. And of course, when we go into various different examples, you can get very much whisked away into a world like in novels, for instance, and people do for like the Harry Potter series, for instance, or in films, people get very much caught up into the worlds of Star Wars and so on. It captures a form of reality and puts it into a way in which we've not known it before. So then, moving on from the question of what is art, then going into the artist's responsibility. Because there's not only that question of the production of art itself as a creative act, there's also the whole point about what is the aim of art for Camus. Why must you produce novels and plays and so forth? And so, Again, we've got another cracking quote to discuss. So, let's go and have a nice discussion of this one. 
The aim of art is not to legislate or reign supreme, but rather to understand. He is the perpetual advocate of the living creature because it is alive. The artists of the 20th century must know that we cannot escape the common misery and the only justification is to speak up for those that cannot do so. We must do so for all those that are suffering at this moment. On the ridge where the great artist moves forward, every step is an adventure, an extreme risk. In that risk lies the freedom of art. Again, what a fantastic quote. You can almost feel the passion that Camus has coming off the page at you when you read this as well. So, we can then go into the question, what is the artist's responsibility in creating art? So, let's go into it. The aim of art is not to legislate or reign supreme, but rather to understand. And so the whole point then he's saying, art is not to suddenly take a pompous route, one in which it tries to act superior to everything else, but rather it wants to understand, understand the world, understand our situation in which we're in, a reflection and understanding of the world itself. And that building upon that, we then go into the whole points, he is the perpetual advocate of the living creature because it's alive. That whole love of the world, as he says, there's that whole love of your fellow neighbor that comes into it. That whole aspect of wanting to understand the world, love the world as well as the people within it. And not just simply to create a piece in which you suddenly go, this is how... I understand the world as this superior, idealistic, dream-like quality. It's quite the opposite. You'd say, no, art is precisely a reflection of the world and a love of the world. And so then, building upon all this, we go into the points, the artists of the 20th century must know that we cannot escape the common misery and that the only justification is to speak up for those who cannot do so we must do so for all that are suffering at this moment. What a fantastic line that is. And in which we get the whole emphasis there upon the whole responsibility of the artist coming out. That in the 20th century now, we have realized something. What is that? That precisely we have to speak up for those that cannot do so and that are suffering at this very moment. Incredibly powerful lines in which you immediately have that sense of the artistic responsibility is to reflect and make others feel passion as well as empathy for your fellow man, is a way of putting it, and feeling precisely putting ourselves into another person's shoes and that whole point of realizing oh my god look at the situation that they're in i can't believe the situation it makes me sick to my stomach i can't believe how things have gotten like this and so 
you can see how Camus builds upon his previous point. Since we have such an emotional connection to what we read, watch, and listen to, then, he says, we've got to use this emotional power that we can evoke out of people. What is the most positive way that we can do for everybody is precisely for everybody to touch upon those points of suffrage and showing precisely everybody in that state who otherwise we would be completely blind to in the world. And that here we can see there's a clean break almost between what Camus says about the artistic responsibility is that we must now, as he says in the conclusion, keep our eyes on destitution, prisons, and bloodshed, clearly seeing exactly all those moments of suffrage. And as he even continues on, there's a need to preserve these days, moments, and faces as well. All these key figures. Why is that? Because in the past, there's this whole idea he talks about of the irresponsible artist that just happily went around just creating art. And therefore, he has that great response to why can't art just simply be about the production of beautiful things that are nice to look at, like your Bob Ross landscapes or your Monet landscapes, for instance. He would say that's exactly the attitude of how art has been in the past. The irresponsible artist who just goes around creating things in a fancy manner, creating these wonderfully dreamlike landscapes. But art can't go on like this. Why? Because things have changed. We've had two world wars. We have now arrived at a state in which we can't just idly go by in this happy-go-lucky, as you can say, mindset anymore. In fact, we need to have the artistic responsibility of showing suffering, of showing days, moments, and faces of those people that suffer. And hence why such a fantastic example, or a couple examples that come into mind, immediately that captured this argument that Camus wants to make, is depictions of war, and I'm thinking here specifically of the Vietnam War and the power that those images had upon everybody when they saw the horror and specifically all the captured footage of what was going on and the absolute hell of that situation, the amount of horror that the American public had at the Vietnam War and the power and the whole aspects of everybody going to the streets and protest against it and wanting the war to end and so on, all those incredibly positive things that everybody did in the midst of all those horrific photos, as, as well as the film that was captured of the Vietnam War. Same thing, of course, can be said about the current Black Lives Matter movement, in which you have all those names of people, as well as all those stories of suffrage, misery, 
of all the various different African-American community. And which exactly Camus point there. We shouldn't forget these moments or faces. There's that artistic responsibility as well to precisely have those names and faces represented. Why? Because it shows precisely their suffrage. We can feel empathy with them. We can realize that there is a problem within the current policing of America and that things need to change. And of course, saying that there's a problem with the policing of America doesn't argue for the fact that there shouldn't be no police whatsoever, but rather there needs to be a reevaluation of exactly what you're doing. Because when you just suddenly kick down a woman's door who's sleeping and shoot her, there's clearly some problem that needs to be resolved there, as well as people that need to be arrested. Anywho, before we go down too much the whole political route there, discussing the whole Breonna Taylor situation, let's go back into the Camus here and say then, as he says, because there's that relation into artistic responsibility of displaying suffrage as well as making us feel empathy for other people, then there's also that whole relation into the artist will be a public enemy. Because what they're going to be doing is going to be something that's going to go against how people think and the norms and the way in which people live their lives. It's going to challenge all these things. And they're going to be arguing precisely and showing us and making us understand a world that ultimately remains blind to us. And so going back into those examples, the Vietnam War, in which we now have a much greater understanding, of course, of the depictions and suffering and all the horrible things that go on in war. Otherwise, if we didn't have all that, we would remain blind to the situation. And that would be a thing as well that the government wouldn't want to come out. Why? Because you wouldn't want people to protest because you've got a war to fight. Why would you want suddenly everybody to run on the streets and, and go against exactly what you're doing? Same thing in their case for the whole Black Lives Matter mo movement as well. You can say, well, everybody acting in that given way are public enemies. Why? Because they're arguing and showing problems within the norms and values of society. They're trying to make everybody aware of the underlying problems that's there that need to be addressed. And so from all this then, we can go into some lovely examples. So the first set of examples that we're going to go into is dealing with the art world first and having a look at Picasso's Guernica, which all of these images well, that I'm going to be discussing is very much easily found on a quick Google image search as well. So within Guernica, you have, of course, incredibly famous art piece by Picasso. And just looking at it, of course, you have just what you can see, a bull's head, as what the interpreters as well say, it's a minotaur's head, as well as faces in agony. 
and just whole aspects of various different limbs, heads, body parts, and so forth, all over the place. Why is this the case? Because, as it says from PabloPicasso.org, Guernica shows the tragedies of war and the suffering it inflicts upon individuals, particularly innocent civilians. The work has gained a monumental status, becoming a perpetual reminder of the tragedies of war, an anti-war symbol, and an embodiment of peace. Upon completion, Guernica was displayed around the world in a brief tour, becoming famous and widely acclaimed. This tour helps bring the Spanish Civil War to the world's attention. And we've got some lovely more information about Guernica here as well. It was a commissioned painting. After the bombing of Guernica, Picasso was made aware of what had gone wrong in his country of origin. At the time, he was working on a mural for the Paris exhibition to be held in the summer of 1937, commissioned by the Spanish Republican government. He deserted his original idea and on the 1st of May 1937 began on Guernica. This captivated his imagination unlike his previous idea on which he'd been working somewhat dispassionately for a couple of months. It's interesting to note, however, that at its unveiling at the Paris exhibition that summer, it garnered little attention. It would later attain its power as such a potent symbol of the destruction of war on innocent lives. While Picasso was living in Nazi-occupied Paris during World War II, one German officer allegedly addressed him upon seeing a photo of Guernica in his apartment. Did you do that? Picasso responded, no, you did. And what an amazing response there. Having a Nazi there with Picasso did you do that painting? Picasso replies, no, you did. Because Guernica is a painting is reflective of the carpet bombing by the German Luftwaffe on the Spanish town of Guernica and all the horrible death and destruction that occurred because of all that. And you can only feel just the emotion and passion which Picasso really painted that in the first place. And because you have just this whole horrific sense of just various different body parts all over the place, it's just an absolutely horrific sight in which it just touches upon that emotion that you can feel Picasso really trying to touch us upon viewing as well the absolute horrors of war and how much it upsets you as well and how much love and compassion we do have for our fellow man is a nice way of putting it and there's a great quote as well from Picasso on painting and it says here painting is not made to decorate apartments it's an offensive and defensive instrument of war against the enemy Fantastic quote, because it also ties into what Camus is arguing for here. Painting is not just something that's nice and decorative. Everybody always reduces painting down as to these nice decorative pictures that you can just put on your wall, something that you can give your mom or dad, something that you can just give your granny. They'll look at it and you go, oh, thank you so much. 
Here, Picasso, as well as Camus, arguing for no, in fact, painting has a much greater value than something that's just hung on the wall and just to be there as a nice piece to look at. In fact, it has a purpose, it has a meaning, and in Picasso's sense here, it's specifically against the whole idea of war and destruction, as well as against the whole Nazi bombing of Guernica and the whole Nazi government at the time in Germany. And so, moving on from Picasso's Guernica then, we can go into another painting which is by Norman Rockwell. And this is the painting, The Problem We All Live With from 1964. And I've got a nice little quote here discussing the piece from Elise Brennan from the article 10 paintings that changed the world from the evening standard. As Elise says here, illustrator Norman Rockwell made his career depicting the normalities of American mid-century life, both the good and the bad. Painted in 1964, the work shows a young black girl named Ruby Bridges walking down the road, on her way to attend an all-white school. She is flanked by security due to the racial hatred this incited. She walks past racial slurs written on the walls. It became an iconic image of the civil rights movement and Barack Obama had it put on display when he invited Bridges to meet him at the White House in 2011. And again, it's another incredibly emotional response that you can feel upon viewing the painting. We see Ruby there in the middle in her nice little dress. And we have the racist slogan in the background, which is the N-word, and she has the security behind and in front of her there as well, with them having the U.S. Marshal little armbands on, as well as the badges on their blazers. And you can see exactly immediately what Norman Rockwell is saying with this painting as well as the title of it. The problem we all live with is the fact is, why does a little girl who's going to school need to have this racist slander put against her and have all this amount of security just for going to school? And of course, it's making us feel the precisely the point that Norman Rockwell's trying to make. It's absurd. It's absurd just because of the color of her skin that there is any sort of hatred whatsoever, that there's any sort of need for a security detail whatsoever. We should feel love and compassion for our fellow man, as Camus says, regardless of skin color, regardless of gender. We shouldn't have this situation to get to this point where a little girl who's gone to school is getting racist slander against her as well as needing a security detail. Isn't this a sad situation? And you could only agree with Norman Rockwell 
in this painting saying, yes, it's absolutely a sad situation. Why did it get to this point? Is really the question that you could think upon upon viewing the painting itself. Why did it get to this point? Why is this not being addressed as a problem? And you can feel all that amount of passion and emotion come out of you as well as that conviction upon those points when you view the image. So moving on from Norman Rockwell then going into discuss Ai Weiwei destroying a Han Dynasty urn and that was done in 1995. And I got another good article discussing the piece from publicdelivery.org. And unfortunately, I couldn't find an author who wrote about this here. But nevertheless, let's read about Ai Weiwei dropping a Han Dynasty urn. Dropping a Han Dynasty urn, 1995, depicts Ai Weiwei destroying a precious artifact. The destruction of this piece of art is displayed in a series of three black and white photographs that show Ai dropping a 2,000-year-old ceremonial Han Dynasty urn. The first shows Ai holding the vase, the second one shows it in mid-air, and the last one shows the vase shattered into pieces on the floor. I claims he actually destroyed two urns in the process of creating the artwork, but his photographer was not able to capture the smashing of the first urn. Due to this act of destroying the historical artifact, the images became more valuable than the original object. The historical artifact became more exposed in a way the traditional methods of preservation couldn't expose it. It can turn your stomach to see such a precious artifact destroyed, but the work paid off in both cultural and symbolic value. The story behind the artwork is as fascinating as the dropping itself. It enraged most antique collectors, but I was out to remind them about the evils of the Mao regime. It was a crystal clear depiction of what the communist regime was doing to the elites. I countered the outrage from the people by describing what General Mao used to tell them. The only way of building a new world is by destroying the old one. What a fantastic line there as well. The only way of building a new world is by destroying the old one in which you can see exactly what Ai Weiwei is trying to say here. You have the whole holding the vase in the first picture, the midst of dropping it and letting it go in the second picture, and then the third one is the vase actually smashed. Of course, everybody has that immediate response. Oh my god, you've just destroyed a 2,000-year-old urn that's part of history. What have you done? You've destroyed a valuable part of history itself. Oh my god, you monster. And that's what, of course, it's trying to evoke out of us. The preservation of history is something that we must uphold and we must value, like the vase itself, but at the same time, Chairman Mao 
destroyed so much things that didn't fit within the ideology of communism and how he saw communism, the vast amount of book burnings and so forth. And really, it's just showing the fragility of history itself, that history and how we think of history is always shaped by those who want us to see it in a certain way or think about things in a certain way. And that's what's so great about museums as well, that it's all shaped and framed and constructed. So by the time you go in the door to the time you come out of the museum, it's all been a completely shaped experience in which the curators want you to think about certain things when you view the exhibits and so on. And when you go into the broader context and you look at governments, that's exactly what they're going to do as well. Try and mold and shape history into how they want you to think about it. And nothing, of course, can be more toxic than a government like Chairman Mao that went around book burning so much things and destroying so much objects of the past just because it didn't fit within the ideology. And that's the whole point. History is something that's fragile. History is something that very much breaks. And it's that tension between wanting to preserve history, but at the same time, that history will be shattered, will be broken when it doesn't fit within people's ideological outlook. And so moving on from the art world then, and then going into the world of literature, I've got a great example here of Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe. And this is from an article by Ron Charles from the Washington Post, 12 Novels That Changed the Way We Live. As it says, just a few months after the passage of the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850, Harry Beecher Stowe felt impelled to give her abolitionist ideals a fuller voice. The time is come, she wrote to a newspaper editor, when even a woman or child who can speak a word for freedom and humanity is bound to speak. She couldn't have imagined how much praise and condemnation her first novel would elicit. Begun in 1851 is a serial tale in a Washington, D.C. abolitionist newspaper, Uncle Tom's Cabin became the best-selling novel of the 19th century. The polemic melodrama's depiction of Uncle Tom being beaten to death and Eliza running from her captors energized the abolition cause and enraged the defenders of America's peculiar institution. Frederick Douglass wrote, Its effect was amazing, instantaneous and universal. Legend has it, when President Lincoln met Stowe, he said, Is this the little woman who made this great war? But no novel's reputation has suffered such whiplash. Nowadays, the name Uncle Tom is used exclusively as a racial insult, suggesting sniveling complicity with one's oppressors. So here we have Uncle Tom's Cabin then, and here we have such a great connection into the Camus. And we can see that 
people were very much affected by the depiction of precisely Uncle Tom, as the main character, being beaten to death because he wouldn't give out the information about the whereabouts of the runaway slaves. And so he was killed. And because of that, it had an immense impact upon everybody that read it. And a good contemporary example of this that pops into mind is the horrible treatment of the slaves by the slave owner in... Django Unchained, which is a Quentin Tarantino movie, and the slave owner is played by Leonardo DiCaprio, who plays this really horrible, nasty man who you absolutely despise. And one of the scenes in which you have in that movie is just a fist fight between the slaves, just for their owner's amusement and for the amusement of the people watching it as well and you think to yourself what a horrible situation that is and another horrific scene as well somebody is getting the dog set upon them and so forth there's all vicious horrible scenes but it all backs up that point that's also made in uncle tom's cabin there that the treatment of the slaves was not nice. In fact, slave owners would treat them horribly and precisely not like people, but rather like objects. And isn't that the whole problem in the first place? You don't actually treat people as people, as well as all the horrible things that they undergo. You can f immediately sense all the amount of passion and emotion that people who read the book would have had and as well as it's interesting how a book that is in the line of arguing for treating people as human beings treating everybody as equal regardless of their skin color arguing for that point of racial equality suddenly gets twisted into in a contemporary setting of it as it says there as a racial insult suggesting sniveling complicity with one's oppressors of course that's not what uncle tom did either he wasn't complicit because he wouldn't have died if he was complicit and so it's just interesting how you can take specifically an idea and then over time it gets twisted into meaning something completely else away from what the original intention was and in a contemporary setting as well, there's very much been people that have argued that we need to challenge this stereotype of it being a racial insult, suggesting that complicity with one's oppressors, challenging that and to go back into what its original intention was in the first place. So let's move on from uncle tom's cabin into another example from the world of literature and this is the book the jungle by upton sinclair and this is from the same article by ron charles 
As it says here, in 1904, a young writer named Upton Sinclair began interviewing people in and around Chicago meatpacking stockyards. With an assignment from a radical newspaper, he intended to expose the exploitation of laborers and rouse a complacent nation to change. His tragic tale about a Lithuanian immigrant roused the nation all right, but not entirely as he'd intended. The story's disgusting portrayal of unsanitary conditions in the meatpacking plant turned America's stomach. Even if you never read The Jungle, you probably know this line, a man had fallen into one of the rendering tanks and had been made into pure leaf lard. The public demanded action. President Theodore Roosevelt launched investigation into the Chicago stockyards that quickly confirmed the conditions were revolting and dangerous to health. In 1906, Roosevelt wrote to Congress, I urge the immediate enactment into law of provisions which will enable the Department of Agriculture adequately to inspect the meat and meat food products entering into interstate commerce. The Pure Food and Drug Act and the Meat Inspection Act passed later that year. The Jungle was an international bestseller, but Sinclair remained disappointed that the plight of America's laborers remained essentially unchanged. I aimed at the public's heart, he said, and I accidentally hit it in the stomach. And so here we have the whole portrayal there by Upton Sinclair of the horrible conditions in which laborers are under within the meatpacking plant in Chicago and had such an impact that two laws were passed in which you had then, as it says, the Pure Food and Drug Act as well as the Meat Inspection Act because of the inspection of exactly the meatpacking plants and so forth, all enabling laws to be passed. And of course, again, like we had with Uncle Tom's Cabin, making everybody realizing the horrible working conditions in which was otherwise went completely unknown to everybody and was so horrible to the extent that it churned everybody's stomachs. And so... Then let's move from the world of literature with our couple examples there into the world of music in which we can go into a brief discussion of a couple examples. The first one is U2's Sunday Bloody Sunday from 1983. And this is from the article by Polly Ryder, 10 Influential Songs That Changed the World on the Culture Trip website. And as Polly says here, one of U2's most overtly political songs, the lyrics of Sunday Bloody Sunday, describe the horror felt by an observer of the troubles in Northern Ireland, particularly the Bloody Sunday incident in Derry, January 1972, where British paratroopers killed 13 Irish citizens at a civil rights protest. However, the lyrics are a non-partisan condemnation of the historic bloodshed in Ireland. Bono says the song is more about interpersonal struggles than about the actual Bloody Sunday events. While performing the song, Bono would wave a white flag as a call for peace, and the track took on a new meaning as a conflict 
in Northern Ireland continued throughout the 1990s. So for U2 Sunday, Bloody Sunday, it again makes everybody aware of the horrible incident that occurred in Ireland with the killing of Irish citizens by the British paratroopers in 1972. And again, it's to have that deep emotional connection in there as well as making us reflect upon the horror of that situation and this also enables us to get into a really great point as well that ties in with what Camus said about the art world in which you had of course that whole relation into art just being something that's pleasant to look at and something nice to give to your mum, dad, or grandparent. Here, for music, you can have a very much comparable argument, where you can say, well, the purpose of music is it just for your own personal listening pleasure and experience. What you take in is beautiful music and you reflect upon it and you enjoy it and there should be nothing deeper really that goes on with music. And you've got great examples of course that back that up. You can just go down the avenue of pop music if you like with there nothing being really deep about any particular song. And one just pops into mind, Justin Bieber's baby, 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 ooh. There's nothing particularly deep going on with that. It's just your box standard commercial love song. And what do we get when we go down the Camus side of things? When we go into that for music, then we can say, well, Music equally should have a message and make us reflect upon deeper things that are going on within the world that ultimately we're blind to or make us actively want to do something. And of course, with that U2 song for Sunday Bloody Sunday, it goes into that point that Camus wants to say. Here we have a horrible event that occurred in Ireland in which the majority of the world would be blind to. Not all the papers in the world's going to necessarily cover an event that happened. However, through music and through the popularity of, of course, of U2, then comes into suddenly everybody in the world's affected by the situation and can empathize with everything that's going on. And suddenly then we're much more in a global situation and global environment before that would have been very much localized and just solely limited to just the national sphere of just Ireland or in the UK as well. And we have a recent song that's just come out by System of a Down who's released their first single in 15 years in which we have two songs protect the land and genocidal humanoids so why did system of a down as a band get back together after 15 years is because of the song's message 
as it says in the notes here on Bandcamp, on September 27th, the combined forces of Azerbaijan and Turkey, along with ISIS terrorists from Syria, attacked the Republic of Nagorno-Karabakh, which we as Armenians call Artsakh. For the following 44 days, civilians young and old were awakened day and night by the frightful sights and sounds of rocket attacks, falling bombs, missiles, drones, and terrorist attacks. They had to find sanctuary in makeshift shelters, trying to avoid the fallout of outlawed cluster bombs raining down on their streets and homes, hospitals, and places of worship. Their attackers set their forests and endangered wildlife ablaze using white phosphorus, another banned weapon. And why? Because over 30 years ago in 1988, the Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh, which at the time was an autonomous oblast within the USSR, were tired of being treated as second-class citizens and decided to declare their rightful independence from the Azerbaijan Soviet Socialist Republic, whose borders engulfed their own. This ultimately led to a war of self-determination by Armenians in Karabakh against Azerbaijan that ended in a ceasefire in 1994, with Armenians retaining control of their ancestral homelands and maintaining their independence to the present day. Our people have lived there for millennia, and for most families there, it's the only home they and their forefathers and mothers have known. They just want to live in peace on their ancestral homeland as they have for centuries. The current corrupt regimes of Aliyev in Azerbaijan and Erdogan in Turkey have now claimed most of these lands as their own and committed genocidal acts with impunity on humanity and wildlife to achieve their mission. They banked on the world being too distracted with COVID elections and civil unrest to call out their atrocities and their tactic worked. They have the bankroll, the resources and have recruited massive public relations firms to spin the truth and conceal their barbaric objectives. This is not the time to turn a blind eye. There is an immediate need for global citizens to urge their respective governments to not only condemn the actions of these crooked dictators, but to also insist world leaders act with urgency to impose sanctions punishing them for their war crimes. And here again, with System of a Down and the release of their single, do we again have the comparable situation to the U2 song, in which it's highlighting a horrific war crimes that have precisely taken place, as it says on September 27th with the combined forces of Azerbaijan and Turkey attacking Nagorno-Karabakh, or as the Armenians call it, Artzak. And that lasted for 44 days, and now they've claimed the land as their own, in which it does just hit you as, oh my god, why didn't I know about this? Because the British newspapers, as far as I know, have certainly not covered anything to do with this as well as you could think about your own media and so forth. Have they covered it at all? And so it really makes you question, like, 
what am I reading? Why is this not getting covered? And so again, we can have that fantastic relation back into the Camus, in which here again, we have the situation that it's making us aware of a horrible event that has occurred. Why was it allowed to occur in the first place? As again, they say for the band that it's due to everybody else being blinded by the American election taking place, as well as COVID is an ongoing event that all the media is covering these things going on. And here we have war crimes being committed and ultimately, and no one has done anything about it, there's been no governmental action taken by various countries around the world to come together to discuss some means of taking action upon Azerbaijan and Turkey for what they've done. And so here we have incredibly contemporary example by System of a Down and the power of their music as well as a message to make everybody aware in the global sphere of precisely what's happened. So overall, let's wrap up then. So we can conclude that for Camus, art is a combination of ideality and reality. The artist awakens us to reality that we otherwise did not see. The artist must take a risk in producing their art as they have a responsibility to enable everyone to see misery and suffering of others. And this must take place across all artistic fields such as novels, artworks, plays and films. Many thanks for listening to the episode. I hope you enjoyed my discussion of Albert Camus' speech, Create Dangerously. Feel free to check out my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dissectingphilosophy. Drop me an email at my address dissectingphilosophy at gmail.com. Tip me a coffee at ko-fi.com forward slash dissectingphilosophy. And lastly, I can be found on Twitter at I am a rubber man. Many thanks for listening and I hope you'll join me next time.